episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to journals to speeches to novels to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Tommy Tomlinson, terrific sports writer and author of the new book, The Elephant in the Room, about his battle with his weight. And here's some quick background. For a couple of years now, my friend Mike Lewis has been begging me to get Tommy on here. This guy's one of America's best sports writers. This guy's website is amazing. So I finally said, uh, let me take a look. And Jesus Christ, man, Mike was right. Tommy is just brilliant. He's written for everyone. And his use of his analogies, his beat, his rhythm, it's just elite. So let's get to talk writing right now on two writers, Sling and Yang. All right. First of all, Tommy, thank you so much for doing this. And, um, you know, we just had this little dialogue before I started recording that I actually think is worth worth delving into a tiny bit, which is if your book is doing well and if everything is going right, you never want to talk about your book again. And then once people stop asking you about your book, you wonder why nobody's asking you about your book. So where are you right now? You've been on the Today Show. You had the New York Times review. You've been written about a million places. Where are you on the on the scale of who else wants to talk versus I never want to talk about this again? I'm I'm closer to the I never want to talk about this again. Yeah, I'd like to just like spend a week in a monastery or something and just not speak to anybody for a little while. But having said that, uh, I, I'm incredibly grateful that anybody wants to talk to me about this stuff at all. You know, my agent says that, you know, most books fall into the, the gaping void of nothingness, you know, where nobody pays attention and nobody cares uh, and that sort of thing. And I'm just so glad that somebody cares and, and wants to talk about it. You know, I'm a little tired of talking about it right now, but part of me is still so grateful that anybody cares at all. I always say like when my, when maybe a parent will say, wow, as you have another book out, that's amazing. And I always say, have you been to a bookstore? Because I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah. Everybody else has a book out too. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, um, I, I think about it. It's like that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where they get the Ark of the Covenant, this incredible thing, and then they push it in the back of this warehouse somewhere, you know, right. this glorious sacred thing. And that's, that's kind of what happens when a book comes out. If you go to Barnes and Noble, first of all, you're incredibly lucky if your book makes it into a Barnes and Noble or some, some big bookstore. But then you go in there and there's like, Oh my God, there's 8 million books in this place. How right. you know, why is anybody going to choose mine? And so it just, it, the odds are astronomical. Wait, so let me ask you this. Why do you think people have chosen yours? Well, I think, so I did a podcast with this guy, Brian Koppelman, who, uh, you know, is a showrunner for billions. He wrote that movie Rounders. And I mentioned somewhere uh, in the interview that I said, you know, I hope this book reaches people beyond just the, the community of people who are overweight. And he said, well, dude, if you just get those people, you're great. You know, cause like 40% of America is, is, can, technically qualify as obese at this point. And so uh, the first thing is, you know, there is, I think, broad audience of people who are overweight who maybe see some of themselves in this book. But I do think it's also framed in a way that reaches out to people who have any sort of issue, whether it's their weight or some other, some other hurdle in their lives that they have trouble getting over or around and that it's a way to talk to them too. And so, you know, you talk about writing as, as, you know, sometimes even when you're telling a story about yourself to try to make it universal in a sense, I think people are seeing some universal themes in this book. What I, what really, what I kept thinking about while reading this is it would be no different than someone writing a book about his like, or her masturbatory habits where you put something out there that is so raw and so personal and so just, I I can't think of that many books that hit me so viscerally as this. And and there was one thing you wrote this passage you wrote 
been it's been written about. I think it was part of an excerpt. But even just reading it last night, I was like, God Almighty! We were my body is a car wreck. Skin tags, long mole-like growths caused by chafing, dangle under my arms and down in my crotch. I've breasts where my chest ought to be. My belly is staved with more stretch marks than a mother of five. My stomach hangs below my waist, giving me what the Urban Dictionary calls a front butt, as if some twisted Dr. Frankenstein grafted an extra rear end on the wrong side. Varicose veins bulge from my thighs. My calves and shins are rust-colored and shiny from a condition called chronus venous insufficiency. Here's what it means. The veins in my legs aren't strong enough to push all the blood back up toward my heart, so it pulls in my capillaries and forces little dots of iron under my skin. The veins are failing because of the pressure caused by 460 pounds of pushing down with every step I take. My body is crumbling under its own gravity. Um, I really, really am fascinated by this. When you're writing about your own body and you don't like your own body and you're writing about this sort of horror you've lived with and live with, and you want to be as blunt as possible. I don't know. Do you literally stand in front of a mirror with a notepad? How do you decide how you're going to describe it? What words to use? Just how to be so blunt without sort of damaging yourself forever? Well, first of all, the, it's the, the reason I did that for, for a couple of reasons. I want to establish very quickly that this was going to be that type of book that I was going to you know, I tell people it's not a tell all, but it's a tell most. And, and so I wanted to establish pretty quickly that I was going to be willing to go to those places because I've read a lot of books and magazine articles and stuff where people talk about issues they've had or problems they've had. And I felt like they did not go there and they did not describe themselves, did not talk about what it was like in a way that I felt was visceral and useful to me. And so I wanted to make sure that in my book, you knew right from the get go that that was what it was going to be. Um, and second, I, I just wanted to give people sort of a glimpse behind the curtain, basically the curtain of my clothes. This is what it looks like underneath. And so to do that, certainly, I, you know, I look at myself in the mirror every day. I know the issues I've got. But what I did in that particular passage was just sort of take inventory from top to bottom. You know, I, I started thinking about, okay, what's something that my weight has caused, like right at the top of my body? And I thought about the skin tags. And as I like moved down from there and I moved down from there and I got down to the, the point you mentioned at the bottom about this sort of venous insufficiency that I have that makes my calves look, look all weird. And so I wanted you to see me the way I see myself in the mirror in the morning. And I thought once we sort of established that that's what it was going to be like, then it would be, you know, you would know whether you wanted to follow me all the way through. How do you make the mental transition? I mean, I hate to get over, over, you know, Dr. Philly here, but how do, how do you make the mental transition from, in a sense, you go through your life almost trying to cover this up. You know, you talk about the clothes you wear and I'm going to, you know, this and that. And you don't want people to sort of, you know, certainly don't want people making fun of you and pointing this out. How do you get to a place where you're like, I'm just going to bear all. I'm just going to put it all out there. This is what I look like. This is what it is to be me. I mean, did it, I don't know. Did it take some sort of acceptance of self-mutilation? Well, it you know, first of all, it took a long time for me to decide to write this book in the first place. Um, I talked about it with my agent, uh, uh, back in 2011. Uh, we, we talked about this very idea and then I didn't do it for three more years. Um, because I was afraid to reveal myself the way that I ended up doing in the book. Um, a couple of things happened that changed my mind on that. The first was, I, another story that I wrote. So I ended up writing a story for ESPN magazine on this guy, Jared Lorenzen, who is a quarterback at Kentucky, um, known as the hefty lefty, you know, played in the NFL a couple of years. And when I came around to, to see him, he was playing minor league football, $200 a game, and he was a 400 pound quarterback. So I had put off writing about myself for three years at that point. But then as I wrote about Jared, I sort of saw a path to writing about myself in a way that I thought would be raw and honest and real, 
but also compassionate. But also, I thought, as I was writing about Jared, that my story might be worth telling uh, because I would tell it in much more detail than a 4,000-word magazine piece. And, and so um, that was a turning point for me in feeling like I could tell the story in a way that I would be comfortable with and that I should. And then the other part of it was I decided that once I was going to do it, I was going to apply all the standards I have for reporting uh, anybody's story to me. So I would learn, you know, I would reveal as much of myself as possible. If I needed to illustrate a point, I would illustrate it with the best story available, even if it was something that didn't make me look good. I would take what I gathered, you know, obviously it was easier because I, there's a lot of stuff that was just in my head. But, but you know, one good um, role model for me in this was the, the book that David Carr wrote a few years before he died called The Night of the Gun. David Carr, he was a media critic for the New York Times for a long time. But when he was in his 20s, he was a drug addict in Minneapolis. And he went back and, like, reported his early life because there were parts of it that he didn't remember because he was high. And so he to, to hold himself to that sort of repertorial scrutiny that he would hold anybody else, that was a big motivating thing for me. And so that's what I tried to do when it came down to tell my story. You wrote a piece August 21st, 2014, ESPN, the magazine, and your lead was Jared Lorenz and I are in love with the same woman. Her name is Little Debbie, and she makes delicious snack cakes. We're not the only ones who love her. Nick Saban has two oatmeal cream pies every morning for breakfast. I'm more of a nutty bars man myself. They're all right, Lorenzen says, but I'll kill a fudge round. We bond over clothes from Casual Mail XL. It's the only place we can walk into and find stuff that fits. I wear a 6X shirt. Lorenzen is a 4XT. T for tall because he's six foot four. So, so I did a Google search for him. I knew who he was, but just like, curious, right? 15,000 hits for Jared Lorenzen and fat. And I wonder in the way sometimes you hear a reporter, maybe who's gay say you, you know, it would, it would help to have a gay reporter interview a openly gay athlete, or you hear maybe a young African American athlete say, you know, I really connected with that guy because he was, you know, he was young African American guy. Do you feel like you were able, like in all these years and all these profiles of Jared Lorenzen being written about, do you feel like you were able to sort of empathize and understand and be the right guy to write about him because you're going through the same stuff? Absolutely. In fact, that's how I pitched it to him. I said, you know, um, I know people have written about you before. I know people have talked about your weight before. I don't think anybody will understand you the way I do. And, and went on to describe, you know, I'm a big guy too. I'm probably bigger than you. I found out when I got to meet him that I was and that, you know, all the stuff you've dealt with through your whole life, I've probably dealt with some version of it. And so when we got together for the first time up in Kentucky, we spent probably the first hour just talking about all the stuff that's in the lead of the story, clothes and snacks that we like and just all the stuff that we have in common. Um, you know, all the diets we've tried, all those sorts of things. And so I thought, I think, and Jared can, I hope, think back me up on this, that just have being able to have that conversation and me understanding not just the the details of what he was talking about, the the facts, you know, he didn't have to explain casual mail to me, but just the having absorbed that life for uh, you know, our whole lives that we started out have knowing each other's language in a way that sometimes is more difficult when you're wandering into something. I do feel like, you know, that I, I feel like as a reporter, um, I can cover anything and I can go into anybody's life and understand in some way by the end, especially if I have the time and the resources to do enough reporting. But I felt like I was, you know, starting on third base, basically, with Jared's story, because I, I knew what was in his head as well, because it had been in mine. In all your years of covering sports, you're walking into locker rooms surrounded by the most athletic men in the world. You're literally walking into rooms of Greek sculptures of six foot three, 220 pound chiseled men. And I wonder, sort of in terms of battling your weight in this book, is that a mind fuck at all? 
Amen. So half of that is right. So you're walking into this room uh, among these sort of very chiseled guys, usually guys. Um, but the other thing is you're walking in there with all these other reporters and they kind of look like I do, you know, <laughs> for the, for the most part, there's a lot of doughy white guys who, uh, who cover sports. Uh, and so, you know, I, I felt like among the sports writers, I was sort of in my tribe and in some way. And, and I will say, I mean, it's, it, it does sound like a cliche, but after a while, if you walk into enough of those things, it's like the whole idea of athletes being naked in there. After a while, it just, I don't even, I didn't even think about it much anymore. The first couple of times, certainly, it's like, wow, these guys are in incredible shape. But what you see, especially when you walk into, say, an NFL locker room, is a bunch of really different bodies. You know, a lot of the linemen are not in what we think of as like chiseled Greek guy bodies. They're just kind of big doughy guys because that's what they have to be to do their jobs. And so, you know, there's just a bunch of different types in there. And the other thing is, by now, especially at the professional level, the athletes are used to seeing us too and they're used to being around each other. And it's just not, you know, it's not the mind fuck that you talk about, not for me. The other part of that is my goal in life has never been to have one of those bodies. You know, I don't care if I look like Aaron Donald. You know, I just want to look normal. I just want to be like an average guy, you know, able to go to, you know, Walmart and buy a pair of Dockers or something. You know, my my goals and standards for how I want to look are like really dull and boring and normal. And so I never even considered wanting to look like one of those guys. I just want to look like the average guy walking down the street. You had, you had a passage that I had underlined, highlighted with multiple stars. It might be my favorite line you <laughs> wrote in the book. Uh, All right. And it has little to do with weight, actually. You wrote, uh, I'm also finishing up a big piece for ESPN, and my nerves always kick in just before a big story comes out. It doesn't matter that I've been doing this for 30 years. I still worry that there's some huge error none of us caught. I worry that nobody will read the story. Most of all, I worry that I didn't capture the truth, that it slid out from under me when I looked away. Uh, when I got back home, my fear balls up in my gut. A Tuesday afternoon, after Alex goes to work, I go to McDonald's. For the next few days, I dive off the wagon. I'm fascinated by this for about 7,000 reasons. But I would think a writer who's been doing this for so long with your resume and your experience, are you saying the fear never leaves? Yeah, I mean, for me, um, you know, and for me, it's in that moment that I described where I've written the story, but it hasn't come out. You know, I, I'm I, I'm sort of no longer nervous in the doing the story part, you know, interviewing people, doing the reporting, um, uh, doing the writing. I mean, I, there's moments I sweat over it and work hard over it and have anxious moments over it. But but that part I've, I've kind of gotten used to and, and sort of gotten over those fears over the years. The part that scares me is when it hasn't come out yet and I just don't know what the reaction is going to be like. You know, there, and there are so many possible bad outcomes. One is that nobody reads it or cares about it. You know, that big gaping void. Um, the other is that I, uh, people read it and they hate it, uh, for, for reasons I didn't expect or hope. Uh, third is that they read it and I got something terribly wrong in there. You know, some factual error that makes people overlook anything good in the story. But the biggest fear that I have is that I just didn't capture it. You know, I didn't get to whatever the essential truth of the story is, or I didn't capture this person well enough where they don't or other people couldn't see that person when they read it, you know, that it just, like I said, like it just slips out from under me somehow. And that's, you know, uh, I feel like uh, something that, that I always worry about uh, in stories that I just didn't quite get there and that I put all this effort and time and expense and the magazine's expense and the reader's time into something that wasn't quite worth the trouble. So I worry about that a lot. Has that, do you feel like that's happened? Like do you actually, when, when you talk about that, do you have a, a moment from your career where you're like, yep, there's a the moment that happened. 
I, I've had experiences with all those outcomes. You know, I've had stories that I thought were really good that, you know, just nobody seemed to care about or read. I wrote a story for ESPN a couple of years ago about Charlie Weiss that I thought was one of the best things I've done. Um, I thought I really got a sense of who he was and, and hit the longing that he had in his life. He's a guy who's not well liked, obviously. Um, but I thought I really, I thought really captured him. And that story just like vanished without a trace. You know, people cared about it for like an hour and then it was gone. And so, and I've had other stories certainly where, you know, I felt like I got close, but didn't quite capture somebody. I did a, another ESPN story for each, about each row where I hung out with him as much as he would let me hang out with him. And I feel like I got pretty close. But then at the end, I, I sort of rushed it a little bit and I didn't feel like I quite, the story that came out was not quite as good as what I had in my head. And so, yeah, I mean, I've had over my career, um, all those outcomes happen. And so that's why I worry about the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Page nine, you wrote, bless me, father, for I have sinned. I left after greasy double cheeseburgers and fried chicken legs and ruffles straight out of the bag. I covered hot Krispy Kreme donuts and melt on my tongue. I worship bowls of full, uh, bowls full of peanut M&Ms, first saving them one by one, then stuffing my mouth with handfuls, then wetting my fingers to pick up the last bits of chocolate dust and candy shell. My brain pings with pleasure. My taste buds uh, groan with desire. This happens over and over day after day, and that is how I got here. Um, you are one of the best detail writers uh, I've ever read. Your your precision is just freaking on point times a thousand. And I wonder, like, the line, I worship uh, bowls full of peanut M&Ms, first savoring them one by one, then stuffing my mouth with handfuls, then wetting my finger to pick up those last bits of chocolate dust and candy shell. It's an experience I think we all can relate to. I've certainly had a ball. You're at a party. No one's really looking. There's six M&Ms left in the ball. <laughs> I've been there. I think right. I literally, I'm not even just saying this. I picture being at Chris Nelson's birthday party when he was seven or eight and there's a bowl of M&Ms and I'm doing that in Mayo Pack, New York as a kid. How do you know not to, you could have left it. I think most people would have said, I worship bowls for the peanut and M&Ms. You know, then you could have said, I savor them. Like what takes you to the next place to go wetting my finger to pick up those last bits of chocolate dust and candy? So like, how is your brain working that you manufacture that? Well, as a writer, so I, I you know, as I went through all these all these scenarios that I talk about in the book, you know, each one of them, I have like various stories from my life that I can use to illustrate them. And so I, in that, in that particular passage, I'm thinking about, Oh, here's all the food that I sort of lust after. And I, and I, what I wanted to show there was sort of the level of desire that I have for these things and how far it goes and that it goes beyond maybe what the normal person would do. So I sat there and thought about for a second, like, okay, I love peanut M&Ms. So when nobody's around, how do I eat peanut M&Ms? And I thought, well, what I, what I do first is I really do. I take them one at a time and I try to savor each one. And then after a while, I'm like, well, fuck that, you know, and I just grab these big handfuls and stuff them in my mouth until they're gone, but they're not, you know, when they're gone, they're not completely gone because there's that debris at the bottom. And then most people might just toss that out or whatever, but I'm different. And so what I do is, I, you know, the way to get it up for me is I wet my finger and I put the stuff in, you know, to pick up those little bits and I eat that. And so I, I wanted to show people that progression to basically show you might like peanut M&Ms, but you don't like them the same way I like them. And here's, you know, and so that's sort of the difference between us and why you might weigh 180 pounds and I weigh 460 pounds. And so that's, as a writer, I'm trying to kind of get you not just inside my head, but inside my actions and the way I do things. And I thought that was a good way to illustrate that. I feel like in a lot of ways, you're everything a journalism professor a bad journalism professor tells a student not to do. Like I could see a million <laughs> journalism professors. I'm being serious about this. Like you, you have a line, you described your aunt Estelle as rough as a cop. I love that right. so much. Like that line is a great 
line. And I know I had professors who would have been like rough as a cob. Well, I mean, what, what kind of cob? What are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. Just the precision. Wait, how do you even come up with rough, rough as a cob? That would, that would never enter my head. I will say I didn't come up with that. That's a, that's sort of an old Southern saying. You know, I think it comes from actually the days of the old outhouse when people actually used, uh, you know, corn cobs as a version of toilet paper, you yeah. know, and that's, that's not a pleasant experience. And so, um, so I think that's where that came from, but I certainly heard people saying that, you know, growing up in the South. Yeah. It's so good. You, you have a lot of, uh, are you, have you read a lot of, uh, Rick Bragg in your, in your life? Sure. You're pretty much required to, uh, if you're my age and you, uh, you grew up in the South, uh, Rick Bragg is part of the core curriculum. A lot of parallels in very, very, uh, very, very great ways. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who has something profound she wants to share about 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. All right, Casey, go ahead. I seen a rainbow yesterday, but too many storms have come and gone, leaving a trace of not one God-given ray. What are you talking about? Is it because my life is 10 shades of gray? What? I pray all 10 fade away. Seldom praise him for the sunny days. Can you stop? And like his promise is true, only my faith can undo. The many chances I blew to bring my life to a new. That's left eyes wrapped from waterfalls. Correct. Why are you doing it? Because these eyes have grown stale. Everyone knows 503 Sports is your sponsor. Everyone knows the website is 503-sports.com. Everyone knows they do amazing throwback sports merchandise. And everyone knows right about now you're going to make some outdated USFL reference that one out of 100 listeners will ever understand. Better quarterback, Bobby Scott or Doug Woodward? I quit. Believe in yourself. The rest is up to me and you. You wrote about being in, uh, you went to Atlanta one college weekend. Uh, you go to someone's house and you're playing a game. We have to ask someone a question. These kids keep asking you, Tommy, why are you so fat? Uh, and you wrote, they thought this was hilarious. It was even funnier to them that I kept losing the game. Once they asked me that, I couldn't stammer out a question to anyone else. After three or four rounds of this, I slipped off into the kitchen. I thought about going in, back in with my own question. How would you like me to beat the shit out of you? My fists were ready, but my heart wasn't. Those guys are assholes, but they were asking the same question I'd asked myself my whole life. Why am I so fat? And you recount a lot of painful, painful, painful moments with, with assholes and people who were real dicks to you when you were growing up and throughout your life. Is there any part of you when you're writing this that feels a little payback or a little like, look, I'm now calling you out in a book and it feels pretty good? Um, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, probably a little, you know, that I managed to succeed, uh, despite all that, you know, is, uh, is a form of, you know, uh, uh, the best revenge, I guess. I don't, you know, th those guys have their own issues. You know, here's Jeff, here's somewhere that I got a real perspective on this. When I was a local columnist at Charlotte Observer, um, I, I started long ago enough that email wasn't like the most prevalent way people, you know, sent me messages. It was voicemail. And so they would often call the newspaper, like the paper gets there, you know, on your desk, on your doorstep at like six in the morning. I get to work and there'd be a voicemail from at like 6.01 a.m. Nobody ever calls you at 6.01 to tell you. They like what you did, right? Yeah. So somebody will just be blasting me over the phone, like cussing me out, saying all this fat stuff, all this stuff. Every once in a while, those people would leave their phone numbers. And when they did, I always called them back. 95% of the time when I called them back, they'd answer the phone. I'd say, hey, this is Tommy from the paper. And they would say, oh, man, I am so sorry. Um, you know, the kids were giving me hell on the way to school. You know, my car wouldn't start. You know, my boss is a jerk. Uh, all this crap was going on in my life. And I saw this column that I didn't like, and I, I spewed it out on you. So what that taught me was that although in that moment, you know, they were an asshole, it probably wasn't because of me. You know, they had other stuff going on in their life, their own pains, their own anxieties, their own issues. Um, 
uh, and they, I was an easy target. You know, that didn't mean it didn't sting for me, but it really helped me understand that most of the time uh, in my life, that stuff's not about me, it's about them. Now, when I was a kid, I didn't have the maturity to understand that. And so that certainly hurt a lot worse when I was growing up. Now, you know, every once in a while, I'll get blindsided where somebody will yell something, like when I'm just walking on the street or whatever. And that will, you know, hurt and piss me off. But most of like the day-to-day stuff, now, I just, you know, it just doesn't bother me anymore because the first thing I think about is what kind of shit has to be going on in their life that they think that's a reasonable thing to do to somebody else. And so that's really helped me. That's really good. Especially in this age. I always say there are times, um, this is a stupid example. You know, I wrote a column last night after the Super Bowl saying it was the worst Super Bowl I've ever watched. And I wrote this column right. for CNN real quick about it. I did think it was the worst Super Bowl I've ever watched. I was bored out of my mind. You know, you get these comments on Twitter. You would think I wrote that, you know, Mother Teresa, you know, whatever, should have been killed, you know, 70 years ago. You know, like, um, <laughs> and I always think it's important to remind yourself on Twitter that it, the words sit there and sit there and sit there, but it's just a fleeting thought that entered someone's head in an angry moment, you know? And yeah, and it's something that you're able to express to the globe in like two seconds, you know, like just imagine like if you had some machine that broadcast your worst thoughts every two seconds to everybody in the world, that's fairly close to what Twitter is. Yeah. You know, there's there, the distance between thought and action is so small on social media that it's really a great forum to pe- for people to be their worst selves. And so, yeah, you have to take all that with a grain of salt. Now there's, I get constructive criticism all the time that I listen to and pay attention to. But if somebody's just called me a fat ass on, on social media or whatever, I just think there's, they've got an issue in their lives probably. And I don't care. When you write a book like this and you, you do a lot of really beautiful writing about your family and growing up in the South and kind of the food and the culture, uh, your relatives, how much digging and research are you doing into your family? Is it okay to sort of use memories and, you know, you were a kid and kind of hope they're pretty correct? Do you feel like you need to be 100% if you're putting it in the book? How do you sort of approach that? Some of the stuff is is my personal memories of something that I experienced and I don't know where the rest of the people even are. Like, for example, there's an opening scene in the book that's basically the first thing I remember in my life, which is being a little kid. There's a kindergarten next door. The kids aren't paying attention to me. So I go in the house, I get a piece of cheese and I give it to them. And that's sort of like a token of friendship. Now I remember that scene, but nobody, I don't, I don't even know who the other kids are. So that one is based on memory. But a lot of the stuff in the book, I reported out. You know, I sent out questionnaires to a bunch of friends and family saying, you know, what are some things you remember about me? What are stories you remember? Uh, you know, how do you talk about me when I'm not around and my name comes up? And then I did interviews, pretty extensive on the record interviews with my mom and my wife about a lot of this stuff. And then I gave the book to basically anybody in my family who I thought was mentioned in there or would remember something in there. And I said, I want you to read it and tell me if there's anything wrong in here. And, uh, and so they did. And I'm trying to remember now, there are probably like a couple of very small things that I changed that somebody like my, my, Seems like my mom, there was one story where she felt and she interpreted it a little bit differently than I did. And so I thought she was, she was a grown up at the time and she was probably right. So I sort of changed it a little bit, but by and large, you know, it stayed intact, but I felt, you know, the same way that when you have fact checkers in a magazine story, I felt much more confident going forward that these stories I was telling were accurate and true because some of the people who were there had read them and, and sort of vetted them. Right. You're, uh, you wrote a blog post about your mom uh, a couple of days ago. She passed a year ago and yeah. said, um, it was a really nice blog post. And you wrote, um, she liked two things. She liked your book, except for two things. One, there are too many cuss words. And two, if she had known you drank so much in college, she wouldn't have sent you any money. 
Um, right. I wonder when, um, when your mom read the book, you know, there, it seems like, uh, you know, I have two kids. When I, when I hear about any sort of hardships they go through, I A, recognize it's a part of growing up and B, it pains me to no end. Um, what did reading this book do to your mom or do for your mom, either or? Well, I, I think it helped us, uh, you know, this, she was in sort of the last years of her life and she knew it and we knew it as, as, you know, not when I started the book, but by, by the time I finished it. And, um, you know, we had talked about this stuff a lot over the years, but never in the depth that we talked about when I got ready to do the book. And as I said just a minute ago, I basically interviewed her for the book on the record with the recorder on. And we talked about all these things. And I think at least some of them, we talked about them with a depth that we had not before. Uh, you know, we had gone round and round about my weight a million times when I was growing up and even later on in my life. Um, and she went back and forth from trying to help to sort of kind of yelling at me about it to just deciding not to say anything and all these things in between that I'm sure any parent, you know, struggles with how to deal with, as you said, if your kid has some problem or issue in their lives. And so I thought we talked about it in sort of an honest and open way and had sort of the best conversations that we've had about it as I was doing the book. And then when she read it, um, I felt like most of the stuff that she read um, she already knew about it at some level because we, right. we had talked about him over the last year. Or so there was probably some new stuff. And I think when she read it, she felt like, you know, she wished that she had been a better parent, which was not my intent at all. I think any, any parent probably thinks they wish they had been a better parent for whatever reason. Um, I thought she was an incredible parent, especially given where she came from. Uh, she and my dad both. And so I, I hold her no, responsibility for that, uh, for, for the way I turned out, except for the good part. Um, but we had a conversation I, I felt like that helped us both and made things, I think, uh, uh, easier for us both in that last year or two of our life. Did you have people from this book come up and apologize to you, whether they should have or not, people come up and say, I didn't know, or I should have been nicer to you or blah, blah, blah. Not yet. Um, I, you know, I had people, I've had people say, I wish I'd known this or that. You know, I, I held a lot of the stuff that was, that's in the book are sort of secrets I had held for, from everybody, including family, friends, even a lot of them from my wife. And so I think a lot of the stuff in the book sort of surprised a lot of people who were pretty close to me. Um, and they said, you know, I wish I'd known this stuff. I would have been able to help better or, or I would have, you know, acted differently or whatever. I haven't had really anybody come up and apologize yet. Probably the, there, and there aren't many people in the book I would expect apologies from. Uh, the few people who I thought were real assholes to me probably aren't going to read it and don't even know about it. And so that's, you know, I don't, I don't expect any deep heartfelt apologies on this book and, and nor would I, you know, really want them at this point. You know, one of the, uh, one of the nice things that happened to me in my career was, um, my first book was a biography of the 86 Mets. And I opened the book by writing about, uh, this bully I had when I was in school in 1986. And, um, I used his name and it felt like the, in a way it felt like the greatest revenge ever. And then, Later on, I felt awful because the people who right. made you miserable when you were a kid, it doesn't, like you said, it's just a moment in time for them. And it doesn't, it shouldn't define who they are. And to hold someone accountable for what they did at 14 or 15 as an adult just is, is, is neither just nor in any way righteous, you know. Or, or when they were drunk, you know, or high or something, you know, that game you talked about where the people are asking questions and these two guys kept asking me why I was so fat. Well, everybody was tanked at that party, you know? And so they might not even the next morning might not even remembered any of that having happened. And so right. I, you know, um, I've tried with mixed success to live a, a fairly empathetic life. And, um, you know, I, I illustrate right about those people in those stories, not to call them out for being jerks, but to say, here's how it felt to me. 
and here and and maybe that helps somebody not be a jerk to somebody else down the line. You know, I had, interesting in one of the book signings I had, somebody said, and basically the question they had was, I'm paraphrasing it, was, but yeah, fat people are a bother when they sit next to me on an airplane or something. How do I deal with that? Uh, that's basically the question the guy had, and I said, well, you know, I I I gave some specific things, but I said in the end. I hope you act the way that you, I would hope to act, you, you act the rest of your life. And that's in the kindest and most compassionate way possible, you know? And so that's not always easy to do, but it's the way I've tried to try to see other people kind of reflected through me, you know, in this book and otherwise. And so that, that helps me not worry so much about getting back at those folks. Do you enjoy, you've done a, uh, you've done a pretty meaty book tour. I'm looking at your book tour schedule. I hate doing events. I hate, <laughs> hate, hate doing events because I'm always terrified of the four people showing up uh, in the empty bookstore. Talked about this on this podcast before. You've done a sure. lot of events, mainly regionally in, in, in the South. How has that been for you? It's been great so far. And, and like you said, I've been doing it mostly in places where people know me pretty well. You know, throughout the Carolinas, I did one in Georgia but it was in my hometown, basically, so I knew people were going to come out there. I've, I've had, not with this book, but I've had the experience that you talked about. I did a, a foreword for a photography book one year, many years ago, and there was a book signing at Barnes & Noble for that book, and I did the book signing with one of the photographers in the book. Two people came to the signing, and one of them was the photographer's mother. You know? oh. and so, so I've seen the other end of it. Um, for this one, you know, I think uh, the Simon Schuster, the publisher, has been pretty smart and strategic about putting me in places where I'm likely to succeed. You know, I haven't done anything in Boston or New York or L.A. where people don't know me. You know, if the book keeps doing well, those things might happen and then we'll see. But so far, I've been sort of set up to, to succeed. Right. I want to throw a final thing at you. I'm looking at a story you wrote in 2017 called Between the Hedges with Vince Dooley. And you wrote it for yeah. Garden and Gun, a publication, I'm just being honest, I did not know existed until last night, which is not insult of Garden and Gun. I just, I, I've never read Garden and Gun. And um, the story is awesome. It's about former Georgia coach Vince Dooley and that he's now, you know, this guy who loves gardening and your lead is, you know, Vince Dooley is telling a magnolia story. It's not about one of those towering evergreen magnolias that anchor many a southern lawn. The one he's referring to is the one he's standing under right now, a smaller, lesser-known variety called Sayonara. After Julie planted the tree, it decided to blossom for 18 years. But one spring, a group from the Magnolia Society International came to visit his garden, and that was the year the Sayonara decided to show off the flowers as big as dinner plates. As Julie finishes the story, he glances up. It's April, and Sayonara is supposed to be done by now. But at the end of one branch, there's a bud with a burst of white at the crown. Well, that's a surprise, he says. I had no idea it bloomed this late. When it comes to plants... Vince Dooley knows something about being a late bloomer. Um, what would even make a human being think, you know what story I want to write about Vince Dooley and his gardening life? Well, uh, so first of all, Gardening God is this very cool magazine, a Southern magazine. I think of it as sort of like a cross between town and country and Southern living. It, it, it you know, they highlight artisans and crafters and stuff like that. And there is sort of a hunting and fishing element. Too, but there's music and books. It's a really good magazine. And um, uh, I had known about Vince Dooley's sort of second life for a long time. I went to the University of Georgia. I was there when he was the football coach. And so I followed, you know, Georgia football, all that sort of thing for a long time. And um, every once in a while, I would see a story about how that when Vince retired as coach and athletic director at Georgia, he had, he got this weird interest in horticulture. And I read somewhere that he had basically taken his property, the house that he's lived in for probably 50 something years now, and it sort of turned it into this landscape garden. And so, well, you know, a Southern magazine called Garden and Gun seemed like a pretty obvious place to, to place that story. And so I was just, what I was interested in more than the, the details of that was the idea of somebody who was in this you know, very macho, masculine world of college football and, and created a second life for himself in just a very different world. Uh, 
And so what led him to do that? You know, what got him interested in it? All those sorts of things. And so that's the story I set out to write was, you know, not, you know, Vince Dooley, Master Gardener, but Vince Dooley, guy who reinvented himself and, and found something to keep his mind and heart occupied as he goes into his 70s and 80s and 90s. You know, and so that's what, that's the appeal of that story to me. Plus, you know, I, I don't mind saying so, he gave me an excuse to go back and hang out in Athens for a few days, which was one of my favorite places in the world. And he gave me a chance to meet Vince Dooley, which I'd never really done. Had always heard he was a really solid, interesting, good guy. And that, that turned out to be the case. You know, it's really interesting. I was just thinking how stories like that, like when I was at Sports Illustrated back in the day, these are the kind of stories we would be assigned all the time. And right. even when I used to write for ESPN, I wrote for page two. And they, you know, if you pitch this kind of story, they were into it. I feel like in this age of we need clicks, we need hits, blah, 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 blah. It's increasingly hard to get someone to sign off on a story about an 80 something year old coach who guardeds. And I think that's a shame. Well, it is, but you know what? The, these, the, what I've learned just from my career writing this stuff is that what people predict will get the big audiences, mm-hmm. never get the big audiences and yeah. vice versa. So that Jared Lorenzen story that we talked about earlier, um, without naming names, Mm, the high ups at, ES, at ESPN, the higher ups, really did not like or get that story, even from the idea stage. They're like, we're writing about a guy who doesn't play in the NFL anymore, and, and the story is that he's fat, and he's trying to deal with his weight. Who the hell's going to read that story? Because it's not about a current athlete. It's not about something young and relatable. You know, it didn't check any of the boxes that they thought it was important to check for their readership. Well, right. it turned out to be, um, I don't, I didn't, I never did get the final numbers, but that, that whole year that I heard about, it was their biggest story of the year. You know, it was more people read that story than read like any other feature story on ESPN that year, to the best of my knowledge, certainly among like the long form stories. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the sort of predictive ideas of what's going to be a hit um, are often wrong. And that's the reason the record business works the way it does. That's the reason the publishing business works the way it does. You just throw a bunch of stuff out there knowing that 95% of it is not going to be a hit, but not knowing which of those things is. And so the stories that I've always liked doing are the, kind of the gray area stories, not the obvious things, not the people who are trendy now, not the big game, and none of those things. But over the years, I've had a bunch of stories that have really done well. And I think that's because they reached something universal. You know, struggling with your weight or any other big obstacle in your life, that's a universal thing. And so people saw that through Jared, even though he wasn't, you know, a four-time All-Pro or whatever, but they saw that through this ordinary guy who just happened to have a connection to sports. Let me ask you a final thing. I mean, do you throughout the throughout the throughout Jared's career in football? Obviously, his weight was a story, and I kind of understand it because it is unusual to see a guy at that weight playing quarterback in the NFL. Um, throughout that time, when you were reading about him and you you see his career and you follow his career. Uh, as a guy who struggles with weight as well, are you thinking this is unfair coverage or are you thinking this is the right way to cover him? Um, a little bit of both. I mean, sometimes it slid over the line. Like there were stories that I read that's like, uh, you know, he, he shouldn't be playing quarterback. And, you know, you know, this was part of his story was he got recruited out of high school, but everybody wanted him to play the line. And he's like, no, I'm a quarterback. And, and people just could not see him as a quarterback. And I think that was the case among some journalists too. They're like, I don't care how good he throws, you know, he needs to be playing tight end or something. And so there was some of that coverage I thought was just unfair in the sense that they didn't see what was right in front of them, which is that this guy, even though his body is not the stereotypical quarterback body, has this great gift for playing quarterback. And then there were other like sort of cheap shot sort of things. But, you know, Jared, to his 
Herndon, I guess, also played into some of that. You know, um, his wife had a baby when he was still in college. And he said, you know, it's, um, I, I help raise the baby. Uh, I get up at, uh, you know, he has feeding times at 2 a.m., 4 a.m., 6 a.m., which is great because it's just like me. You know, and so he sort of right. played into the whole thing. And now, um, you know, one of his entrepreneurial things that he does is, he, you know, he, one of his nicknames was the Pillsbury Throwboy. And yep. he has a T-shirt line called Throwboy Tees where he sells Kentucky T-shirts and some of them are ones of him. And so he has bought into that thing uh, himself. And I guess the way I feel about it is if if the person that is willing to go there with you and wanting to do some of those things, then it's more okay than if they're not. And Jared was always willing. Well, Tommy, it's a, it's a freaking great book. I feel like I'm better for, for having read it. I, I really mean that. And uh, We go through life and we're not always, we're aware, but are we really aware of the impact our words have on people and sort of the impression? I just think it's important to be reminded and to see it from, from a very raw place. So I, uh, you know, I commend you 100% and, and seriously thank you for doing this so much. Oh, my pleasure, Jeff. I, I, I've enjoyed your work for so long, enjoyed this podcast, and so keep doing what you're doing too. I want to thank today's guest, Tommy Tomlinson, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Tommy on Twitter at Tommy Tomlinson. Visit his website at TommyTomlinson.com and buy The Elephant in the Room wherever books are peddled. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are truly, truly, truly appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>